Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber, and joining us today is owner and financial planner of Plan First LLC, Joel Arsenal. Thank you for joining me, Joel. Thank you for having me. I know our listeners are going to get a lot of inspiration from our conversation today. I always like to start the podcast with learning more about you and your journey. So tell our listeners a little bit about how you got where you are today. Well, it's never a straight path, right? I could start way back when I was a wee little boy, and a lot of my family actually is in education, teachers, administration, that sort of thing. And I grew up around that. And I remember distinctly in my early teenage years saying, I know for sure that I don't want to be a teacher and I don't want to go into education. So when the college applications were in front of me and I had to check a box, well, guess what I checked? I checked education because <laughs> it seemed it seemed pretty good, you know, like the whole summer's off thing and um, you could be a coach and a mentor and, you know, it was um, pretty good, maybe family lifestyle. So I went to school, became a certified as a seven through 12 English teacher or language arts, did that for four or five years and actually obtained my master's degree in education, which then kind of prompted me to question, is this what I want to do? And um, I thought I wanted to be in education. I just didn't think that being in the classroom was for me. And so I kind of pursued with that master's degree, some like alternative positions, like test writing. So outside of sort of the school environment, but still in education, I looked at pursuing college professorship or adjunct and kind of going that route. And then lo and behold, uh, my girlfriend slash fiance at the time, we bought a house and the insurance agent came in to do the binder. And he had the famous sales words. Do you know anyone who's interested in an opportunity? And uh, he talked to me about becoming an insurance agent for Horace Mann, which is um, specialized in selling insurance to educators. And um, that kind of led me down this financial path. So I have a couple of follow-up questions for you. Um, I would like to delve a little bit deeper. Do you feel like your early journey into at least some parts of education helped you connect better with those clients that were in the education system? Did it give you a, a better understanding maybe of what they might be? I'm always looking for, I, I believe everything happens for a reason. And I'm always looking for that aha moment for some of our listeners about why a certain place they're in today might benefit them in the future. It probably helped early, you know, the whole sales pitch to me from the existing agent to me as, hey, this, you would be great was, you know, you're a teacher, they're a teacher, they'll, they'll buy stuff from you because you were just doing what they were doing sort of thing. That was, it took me probably a year and a half to get through the imposter syndrome of sitting across the table of teachers, me selling or positioning insurance products to them me literally thinking in the back of my mind, why the heck would they buy this from me? I was just teaching seventh grade English like a year ago. You know, if you want to get into some kill a mockingbird analysis, you know, I could probably go down that way, but you know, buying life insurance from this guy. And so I kind of had to get over that 
I would say it probably wasn't maybe till five or seven years sort of into the financial services industry where I think a client or even a prospective client had said something to me about being a good educator because I tended to use a lot of analogies and connections and stories, which obviously is what I tried to do in teaching English. And so that was kind of the epiphany moment of, oh, the way I communicate is like an educator to these clients, these prospective clients. And I was just trying to constantly make it, I guess, understandable and easier to them. That makes sense. I run into a lot of financial professionals who either started from a second career, maybe they were educators for a while or even thought they wanted to be. Um, and there are a lot of parallels between education and what you do today. Um, and you're just, you're describing those parallels. And I think that's important, you know, communication styles as they are and as complex as our industry is being able to help main street investors, those clients um, that perhaps aren't as sophisticated as we are hopefully and, and help them get their arms around what it is that we're suggesting to them. So sounds like in your experience that has, you've found that as well. Yeah. I think our industry, if you kind of trace it back, it's I, I the, the analogy I use, right. Is kind of that of an auto mechanic. Like I don't know how to fix anything on a car. And so I bring my car to them and they tell me, Hey, you need a new engine and be like, okay, you know, like whatever you say, you're the expert. And that's kind of been our world for a long time. Although that has rapidly changed with access to information and magazines and all of the content that's out there. So the prospects and, and clients that we're sitting down with now have the potential to be, you know, a lot more educated in what we do and how we do it. And in fact, they don't necessarily need us to quote unquote, do what we needed to do before. And so making it relational or relationship-based, that's been a good sort of first step is let's make sure we're on the same page. Let me make sure I understand you. And I don't want to go in there and try to talk over you and be imposing and make you feel like, oh my God, I need this guy. Cause he just said all these really fancy words. So we're going to hire him because of that. That's, I think that's changed. At least it, it has in my mind. Which can be good and bad, right? So I think, I feel like some of the information out there is not always accurate. Um, and part of our job is they have gone online. It's kind of like uh, in the medical field. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but if you go into a doctor's office and you say, well, I Googled the test results and the words that they used in there and I might be dying and they roll their eyes like, uh, right. I, wish, I really wish Google had nothing medical out there. I think financial services can be the same sometimes because there are so many different variations which is a great segue to my next question for you is explain to the listeners a little bit about your business, how you decided to build it, who your ideal client is that you work with and how you differentiate yourself. So it's, you know, I was just talking to a, a cohort around the hall, a CPA that I work a lot with almost exclusively all the time. And we just talk about these things all the time. And you know, the, I guess the truth of the answer is, is that it's always evolving, right? And that it's like trying to determine what to charge and how to charge, you know, is it AUM fee? Is it a flat financial planning fee? Is it both? Which one's better and why? And how do you measure all of that? So that's, that's kind of a constant changing sort of goal line. But I guess in the differentiation piece, and I didn't really think of this 
in naming the business. It's it's kind of um not not quite stolen, but uh, Steve Lockshin is an advisor based out in California. I don't know if you know him, but he's um, kind of a serial entrepreneur. And um, I'd listened to him on a few different podcasts. And he most recently started several years ago, Advice Period. And he's actually written a book, Get Wise to Your Advisor, which is actually written to clients on here's some things that you should think about before hiring you know, any financial advisor. And he himself being an independent RAA, you know, he's coming through that lens and he's kind of saying, well, look, even I don't have the best business model. Like I have conflicts of interest. I just, you have to disclose them, obviously. And so all that kind of tied into me thinking about, you know, my company, the name and what I do talk to clients about. And it kind of occurred to me in this epiphany sort of way that, you know, the investment piece of our world is, in my opinion, uh, becoming more and more the commodity in terms of where I can add value. And if I create a portfolio or somebody else does, or if, if it's a robo advisor, it still has to tie to your plan. So the plan has to come first. See what I did there? <laughs> but it's, and it's always kind of been true. Maybe it's just been positioned incorrectly. And even I did that. It was always sort of about the portfolio first and always about the investments. But it's kind of like, well, how can you have one without the other? You need some answers, you need some ideas and goals and objectives. And so I think how hopefully I position myself differently is that I'm not necessarily concerned about managing directly the investments. If that's something that clients want me to do, I can certainly do that. And I explain all of, you know, how that would work. But to me, the more important piece of what we do is discussing those goals, objectives, and how it ties into estate planning and insurance planning and all of the other bits and pieces. And the other part that I would add, and more so with maybe the younger generation and sort of the older millennials, which I think are like 38 or 37, something like that. I think my contention is, is that they're going to be as concerned about personal wellness planning as they are, um, you know, their estate plan. You know, I think younger millennials and Gen Z are going to be probably managing a lot of their money on their phones and tablets. And so they're going to kind of look and say, well, why do I need you to do that? It's already being done. So where do we go? Tying that to the plan, tying it to your personal wellness. So and I know there's several Cambridge advisors that do things like this already with nutritionists and dietitians and uh, mental therapy and sort of the whole picture. And that to me was kind of my idea a few years back about this virtual family office. You know, I've spent a lot of time building connections and meeting people and learning about them and their businesses. And I thought, I thought early on, it was about being able to hand out their business card and sort of had that reciprocity. Like, well, if I hand theirs out enough, then they'll start handing mine out. And what I figured out along the way is that if I just do the right thing and I make a good connection and build their team, right? If it's personal wellness or financial or tax or whatever it is, then that's always going to kind of come back and reflect on me, hopefully in a positive way. If I, if I vetted the right people and created the right sort of network. So you don't need, you know, 15 or $20 million to sort of stroll through the door and get this family office experience. You can have it, right? It's just going to be sort of 
you know, with these independent individuals, hopefully looking out for your best interest in, in many different facets of your life. So how do you do that due diligence? How do you vet those individuals to make sure that you are surrounding yourself with the right people? Is there a, an organization? Is there a tool that you're using? I think what concerns a lot of people, if they don't want to build it themselves, this networking idea has legs, but they do worry that all it takes is for me to refer my client to someone who doesn't meet their expectations, lets them down. Like your reputations do become to some extent entwined. How do you get over that? What do you, how do you find these people? I think it's time and it's communication and especially communication of expectations. And um, I'm the, I call myself sort of the cup of coffee guy, like on LinkedIn and, and you know, in person, it's, if I meet somebody at an event or somebody tries to connect with me virtually, you know, I always ask, well, let's, let's get a cup of coffee. And I truly do want to learn more about your business and you. And it's not that instantaneous, like, oh, that sounds really good. Let me start giving your name out. So the time factor is, you know, these are multiple sort of interactions, really understanding what it is that they're, you know, truly trying to do for their client or customer or whatever it is, their patient, maybe that sort of thing. And then the expectation of communication or the communication of expectations is here's how I work with people. If I, if I send someone to you, here's what I would expect in return. You know, legal estate attorneys are good with that in terms of there's obviously documents and things that can be sent along the way. But even further than that, it's sort of almost being part of their workflow process. Like, hey, we've met with the Smiths. They've come in and now they're looking at documents. Now they're signing documents or they're moving to the next you know, phase of the, the whole sort of piece of what they're trying to accomplish. I'm letting these people know that I want to be in tune with that. Though I'm not getting paid for it, though it doesn't have anything to do with me because I'm not a legal planning professional or a tax planning professional, I want to be in tune as that sort of, you know, probably overused analogy of being the quarterback of the relationship, but letting them know that. And then when that first occurrence happens with that sort of referral is again, sort of, hey, let me know when this happens. Let me know when that happens. If there's documents, if there's policies, if there's something sort of tangible, I want to be a receiver of that as well so that we can talk about it. So then I can go back and tie in that relationship, what I've done for you, but also what they're doing for you. And we can kind of constantly review it on that appropriate continuum of, you know, whatever it might need. Obviously, you're not pulling out an estate plan every every quarter or even every year. So I think it's really communication, it's time, and it's the expectations. Yeah, makes sense. I don't have a crystal ball by any means, but, and this isn't a popular opinion with even some of my own clients, other financial professionals, but I've said for years that I think at some point, for all the reasons you were describing earlier about asset management or money management, being a commodity, the way I talk about it is that, you know, there's always been this concern that there's fee compression in that environment. And it's real, assuming that they aren't focusing on their value proposition across the board. And they're only talking to their clients about the fact that they make X for that money management. But in my opinion, even today, and certainly as we go out into the future, and this gets more and more popular because of the generational components you discussed, 
I think if you examine your value prop and communicate it to the clients in full, financial professionals can actually make more money, not less. It doesn't have to result in fee compression. And you can charge, you know, I, I argue that you could potentially still say that you're charging a percentage of assets. You don't have to move to subscription-based or financial planning, but you definitely got to be able to outline the services you're giving in addition to asset management. So it sounds like you're definitely on the right track, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> a good example, I have a prospect coming in on Friday, and one of the questions I, I posed to them before coming in was, obviously, you know, how much are you paying for your services? All in, keywords, all in, right? Because nobody ever answers that. <laughs> they don't know it, unfortunately, sometimes. Right. And what does that mean? You know, and, you know, kind of like with referral centers, right? It's explaining to them, this is what that means, right? Ask about a program fee or a platform or whatever it might be. But secondarily, what are you getting for it? Is, are you getting a quarterly statement? And then a performance review. I'm I'm not scared of fee compression. I'm scared of people basing my relationship with them entirely on a portfolio performance. Like that terrifies me. <laughs> like, That's a great point. It's not in my control. And I the way I see it is that, you know, when I started in 04, 05 in the insurance industry, I wasn't really, I wasn't doing any sort of asset stuff. But as I joined my uh, joined my first brokerage firm. It was, you're a financial advisor, you know, 90% more than the general public. It was that barrier of information entry. So therefore, you're the expert, they need you to do this. And when you look back at your quote unquote training as an advisor, at least mine, I was never trained to create portfolios or to measure the duration of a fixed income sleeve versus an equity sleeve. Yet somehow, even still today somewhat, if you look at maybe other training programs, you come out of that believing that you actually know how to create these things and you don't. It, it, you know, Now, obviously there are probably many CIR advisors who with CFA marks and things of that nature do have some of that knowledge and can do that. And then through years of experience, probably have accumulated some of that. Absolutely. It's, it's going to be something I think we will be debating for many, many years to come, but it's worthy of the debate for sure. Uh, and different business models for different people are appropriate to your point. So let's fast forward. Let's talk about the future for you, your future business goals. What are you looking to achieve in the next few years? You know, I don't have these gigantic dreams of wanting this huge org chart of 30 people below me uh, type deal. Call it a lifestyle practice or not. I don't know if that's a, a bad term. You know, I want to be able to support, obviously, my, my family and take those staycations as, as, as warranted and, and needed and not worry about it. I'm pretty simple. I think from a business growth perspective, only for sort of operational and service efficiency. I, I currently do use two virtual assistants, which have been great through Cambridge. And actually we're, we're meeting to discuss how I can utilize them further and deeper and all of the other things that they can do for me that I've chosen not to give them. <laughs> but I will hopefully start doing that. But from a growth perspective, I guess perhaps maybe a junior associate at some point in some maybe an in-person operational person. Again, 
just to help with the infrastructure. Um, the legendary Barry Schmidt, who we all probably know well, we were working on the, um, the High Speed Growth Advisor project a couple of years ago. And everybody thinks it's about marketing. It's like, you know, get more clients, get more of this and get more of that. And he said, and I've said this a hundred times since, he said, well, that's great, but do you have the infrastructure for it? So what if you get five new prospective client leads or 10 a month? What does that look like? How do they, how do they come in? How do they onboard? And oh, by the way, like, what about those other clients that you already have? You know, do you have the infrastructure? Do you have the capacity to sort of handle them? And at that point in time, the answer is, well, geez, you're right. No, like I would be going bananas. And to our previous little topic of asset management, you know, it's really a service issue, I, I think. So if you're doing some of these other things that, you know, they just take more time, then you do need that infrastructure to be able to handle not only the clients that you have, but those other people that you want to help. Where I live in New Hampshire, there's a beautiful lake, uh, Lake Winnipesaukee. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of wealth around the lake. And I've kind of identified a not so conspicuous, I don't know, call it a niche, I guess, but because you probably ask about ideal client. And um, it's people in the trades. It's quote unquote, the blue collar workers. I'm, I'm from a paper mill town in Western Maine. And my dad was a pipe fitter for 46 years. And my mom was the high school secretary. And, uh, you know, the story, I guess I told myself for a long time was, well, I'll never be that. I'm not, you know, a privileged, you know, upper crust kid, that sort of thing. And this was the epiphany I had about the business and my business was I was sitting with a husband and wife. They own a commercial electrician business. The wife had to use the restroom. We're only 15, 20 minutes into it. And uh, she left and I asked the husband, hey, how, you know, how's the meeting going? Because we were just chatting about stuff. He said, I never thought a guy like me would be meeting a guy like you. And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, all this money stuff, fancy stuff. And I was like, look, <laughs> and I told him where I grew up and what my background was. And instantaneously, he kind of relaxed. And the truth is, you know, around this lake, you've got a lot of people with a lot of money um, and they're paying a lot of these guys really good money. And they have these companies that are well run. And I just think it's an underserved and underappreciated occupation. And it's kind of turning, it's pivoting a little bit. People are having more respect for the trades as people are trying to get decks built and all of a sudden they're finding, well, hey, that'll be two years from now. I have, you know, clients of many different ilks and, and trades and doctors and professionals and this and that. But I guess from a marketing standpoint, what I want my business to look like in the next few years is really helping those people get good planning solutions for the business, which I think, again, has been just underserved. And they usually end up with the family friend or somebody at the bank, and they're not necessarily getting good info. Yeah. Uh, hey, I think you're onto something because my sense is the last couple of years, COVID in particular, have created this environment where even many young people are looking at the trades again. For a while, I was a little worried that 
the day would come where there were no plumbers, electricians, you know, general contractor type functions because there was a lot of demand to your point and not a lot out there. And there's no, there weren't a lot of kids going into those things. You know, they're not coming out of high school saying I want to be in a trade, but I do think that's starting to happen now. So you might be setting it up for a lot of success in the future. Let's shift gears a little bit. Joel, you're a member of our new Century Council, which I believe has been around for our listeners about 12 years. It's a group of our financial professionals who help us prepare to support them and others like them farther out into the future than just the next one or two years, three years, five years, seven years, um, even 10 years sometimes. So first of all, thank you for your participation on that council because we definitely get a lot of our great ideas from it and um, the contributions are great. But can you talk about the efforts of the council from your perspective and um, how you use what you've learned perhaps to further your business? It's, I guess, first and foremost, I would say that it's it's been really interesting and educational and helpful for you know personal and business planning wise. And everybody that I've interacted with on the council over the last, I think it's four or five years at this point now, they, they just all seem to care a lot. They care a lot about the profession, you know, being a profession. And they all seem to care a lot too about Cambridge and the intentions of what, what Cambridge is and what they're looking at and I know that we had a subcommittee, um, I think two years ago about the next gen advisor. And there was some very lively discussion about, you know, recruiting and, and those sorts of efforts. And, you know, is that something that we wanted to go down, you know, in terms of other broker dealers and things of that nature. So there's a lot of caring and, and concern. And it honestly doesn't seem to be from a personal business perspective. It's kind of like, Hey, we really like it here. What's helpful is like Brian and Amanda who organize and bring in other, well, people like yourself, but other, uh, or the Seth Millers of the world, and then external people from Fidelity or Pershing, or um, we've had some different technology. We had a in-person conference with people from Microsoft about the HoloLens and what you know, future meetings could look like. So it's been really insightful, educational, and it's kind of neat to have a little bit of a voice on some of the things that we're looking at and trying to develop and solve problems that maybe we don't even know exist yet um, and try to look out for those. That's, it's been very fascinating over the last 12 or 13 years as we've worked with this group because sometimes we hit topics that maybe right at the time are a little ahead of their time as you just described, you know, that I remember those meetings about, um, you know, virtual type offerings. And some of the people in the room were like, this is, it's a relationship business. This is never happening. Um, but, but they played along and to your point, voila, like immediately after it seems like, and I know it was a year or two, but still, and now you've got people who will never go back to -to face-to-face meetings, not everyone, but We don't always know the value we're getting, even on the day we're talking about something, but we tuck those away and we get the aha moments down the road. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night, like I know what they were telling me a year ago. Now I get it. So it it has really been a lot of fun working with that group. When I originally started it, it was for people in their mid forties and under. And then when I was about 48, I realized I was going to have to fire myself. So I had to change some of that stuff. 
but I do, I do think older people can have young, interesting, innovative minds and ideas. So the other thing that it provides too, is it at least makes me feel like that if, if I have a, a question or a concern or something like that, I, it makes me feel a little bit more comfortable reaching out, I guess, and, and asking some of those questions. I, I don't think it carries any more weight, but it's just made me more comfortable. And then also the sort of side um, connections and networking, you know, there's emails that go back and forth between myself and other members just on, you know, one little small tangent in a meeting and they mention, oh, I use like a technology somebody had mentioned the other day. So I send an email, I'm like, tell me about that. You know, and they, so we call each other up and we're talking about it. And so you're learning what other advisors are doing. Again, be proactive, right? Don't wait for people to call you. Don't, don't wait for an event. If somebody says something interesting or they look interesting or their bio is interesting, I do this on LinkedIn all the time. I just reach out to them and right. Hey, let's get a cup of coffee. Oh, I live in California. That's all right. You drink yours at nine and I'll drink mine at 12. I drink coffee all day. So it always works. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good advice, especially if you're in a business model that you were describing earlier where you don't have a lot of infrastructure, right? You're not, you're, you're going to build a team and you've got the infrastructure you need right now, virtually, it sounds like, but um, your goal isn't to have a team of 15 or 30 people. And many, many of our financial professionals and people in our industry are like that. It's a different version of the older, more traditional solo model that we've had forever because it's, Definitely not, um, you know, back then it was really Lone Ranger. So those just meant they hardly talked to anybody at all on any given day other than their clients. I know there's not a lot of that coming as a newer generation of financial professionals, but networking becomes really important. So you don't feel like you're out on an island by yourself and you have some people to toss some ideas around with. So Joel, usually as I near the end of my podcast, I make sure that our listeners understand that financial professionals have lives too. And that we're not all workaholics. So you mentioned family earlier. I would love to learn more about your family as well and what you do in your free time with them. We talked a little bit about this, but you know, when you do have the downtime, how do you spend it and who are you spending it with? My son is 13. So he is the first teenager in my household. Um, Congratulations. And maybe I'm sorry, but this too will pass. <laughs> Yeah. So there's him, Xavier, and my daughter, Campbell, who's 11, and my wife, Melissa, um, and a couple of cats and a couple of rabbits. You know, we camp uh, with, with the lake. We actually don't own a boat because, you know, my wife wants one, but I always say, well, all of our friends have a boat. So why do we need one? And they're, you know, the kids, as it seems like all kids now are just, you know, it's go, go, go. My son plays hockey. My daughter's in gymnastics and dance, you know, there's softball, baseball. So what I'm doing right now is I guess I'm being a dad. While you're in that phase, enjoy every minute. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I'm, I'm looking forward to some downtime, but also it's, you know, I try to remind myself of that. There you go. That sounds like great advice. Well, Joel, thanks for joining me today. I know our listeners will get a lot of value out of learning more about you and you've shared some really great ideas. Any uh, last closing words before that? I Maybe a question I didn't ask or anything you think our listeners should hear from you? I guess the only thing I'd say is we were having this discussion in the New Century Council the other day in a sub subgroup um, 
and there was somebody in the in the council who's I think less than two years into the into the industry and they were kind of asking how that like how does that magic happen how do you get there and you know it really is just time and it's being genuine about your intentions it's asking questions it's you know not calling to sell or be passive aggressive in a in a roundabout way it's honest to goodness questions because those questions are going to sort of demonstrate to those professionals what you're working on with your clients right and it is kind of this backdoor way it's like oh they're asking this they must be working on that well that's kind of neat i'll maybe i'll put that in the back of my mind somewhere and listening just listening and tapping into them for their expertise Clo closing the mouth is a good thing <laughs> yeah absolutely great advice Thank you for sharing. Thanks for joining me today. You are Cambridge Stronger and we're lucky to have you. So appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app.